So this is it. I don't have anything special to ask you to do. These are just stories this morning about experiences, about giving your hearts to the Lord. I just want to tell you how much I have enjoyed coming back to the pastorate again. And you know, Marilyn took my place. And this time it was really fun to take the office next to hers and take another job. And she and I have had some really good talks. So have Stephen. I've loved working with Mark and with Carol. I really enjoyed working with Gary Patterson and now with Chad. How interesting life is. And the person who is going to take Steve Wilsey's in my place is going to be here next week. So you can welcome him here. It's all been good. And Dick and I are still here. And I hope Elmer Carino isn't here because he's still the perfect husband for a pastor. <laughs> but I will have to tell you that the whole time I was retired before, Dick was still working at his job at, as an engineer. And then I went to work and he retired. So he and I have never been retired together. So we're looking forward to that tomorrow. <laughs> That's how soon it happens. I'm going to share some stories about Elisha that show how people's choices were significant in their lives and were significant in the lives of others. While they may not have been remarkable, they're simple. God is in these experiences and made the choices significant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being with us this morning. And we're gathered here as a congregation to hear your word. That's what we're going to talk about. But help us to be touched by your Holy Spirit in such a way that we would give our lives completely to you. We may talk about that, but it's harder to do, so we should just really think about it and what we can do for you, and you would impress us. And let nothing separate us from you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may follow in 2 Kings 4. You'll probably just like having it open in your lap, if you like. The wife of one of the men at the School of the Prophets needed guidance from Elisha. Her husband, who was known to Elisha as a godly man, had died. Now the woman was a widow with two young sons and no means of support or income. For a widow to raise two sons unaided would have been a very difficult thing to do at that time. According to Hebrew law, a creditor could take the debtor and the children as servants. It would be heartbreaking for this woman to lose her husband to death and her two sons to servitude. But God is the judge of widows, and he sent Elisha to assist her. How can I help you? Elisha said. What do you have in your home? I have nothing there at all except a little oil, she replied. 
Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars and don't ask for just a few, he instructed. God often starts with what we already have. Moses had the rod in his hand. Peter and his companions had the fishnets in their hand and the lad had loaves and fishes. All that poor woman had was a little oil in a vessel, but little is much when God is in it. Most of her neighbors would have unused empty vessels sitting around, so she wasn't robbing anybody by borrowing them, and once she had sold the oil, she would return the vessels. Elisha instructed her to shut the door so that nobody would see that a miracle was occurring in her house. And no doubt she warned her sons to keep quiet. She poured the little bit of oil into a borrowed jar. And she kept pouring and pouring until all the jars were full. Bring me another one, she said to her son. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. The amount of oil she received was limited by the number of vessels she had, and that was controlled by her faith. When she sold the oil, she had enough money to pay off the debt and to sustain herself and her sons. What if she had chosen not to borrow jars from her neighbors? If she hadn't begun pouring her meager amount of oil, would the miracle have happened? What if she had stopped pouring before all the jars were full? Elisha was a man of mild and kindly spirit, says Ellen White in the story of Prophets and Kings. His was a peaceful mission. And you know, Elijah came before him and mentored him, and Elijah was noisy and wild, and he had principles to tell all the people, and he shouted them and he lived them. But it was Elisha's job to take those principles and gently put them into people's lives. He was in touch with people, checking on and teaching the students in the schools of the prophets, bringing through his miracles, his healing, his joy. Shunem was a town about 20 miles northwest of Abel Menhola, Elisha's hometown. And 25 miles on beyond Shuneman was Mount Carmel. The average traveler on foot could cover 15 to 20 miles a day. So Shunem was the perfect halfway point for Elisha whenever he went to Mount Carmel to pray or meditate and seek the Lord in a new way. Since Mount Carmel was a very special place because of Elijah's ministry, perhaps nearby there was another school of the prophets. In Shunem, Elisha developed friendly relations with a couple who were very wealthy 
and in good standing. One day when he was passing through, the woman invited him to eat. The food and the conversation must have been really great because whenever he came by, he always stopped there again to eat. The unnamed Shunammite woman perceived that Elisha was a man of God and she wanted to serve God by serving his prophet. Her husband didn't oppose her. He enjoyed her hospitality to the itinerant preacher. He permitted her to have an apartment, a prophet's chamber built on the roof of the house and to furnish it with a lamp, a table and a chair, and a bed. It was large enough to walk around in, as we'll see later, and apparently offered room enough for Gehazi, Elisha's servant. The woman also saw that to it that the two men were fed. The prophet and his servant were resting or taking a nap one day in the room when Elisha expressed desire to do something special for the woman because of her kindness to them. And he asked Gehazi to call her so he could discuss the matter with her. But you'll notice her reply was simple, brief, and humble. I have a home among my own people. Hmm, thought Elijah. Gehazi suggested that she might want a son. Her husband was much older than she, and if God could do it for Abraham and Sarah, he could certainly do it for them. It was likely that her husband would precede her in death, and without a family, she would be left alone. Gehazi called for her a second time, and Elisha said, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. Oh no, she protested, it cannot be. But Elisha promised. Sure enough, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Her home had been childless, says Ellen White, and now the Lord re rewarded her hospitality by the gift of a son. Years passed, the child grew, and one day he went out into the field with the reapers. While with his dad, he grabbed his head and cried, my head, my head. The father had a servant carry the boy back to his mother. She cradled the child in her lap, but around noon, he died in her arms. She carried him upstairs and laid him down on Elisha's bed, then shut the door. She went out to the field and asked her husband for a servant and a donkey so she could quickly visit the man of God. She didn't tell her husband that their son had died, maybe because the husband would have ordered an instant burial common activity in that place because nobody wanted a corpse in the house during the hot harvest season. Her husband wondered why she wanted to see Elisha when it wasn't a special holy day, but her only reply was, it's all right. 
Now remember, it's 25 miles to Mount Carmel, and it's afternoon, but that's where Elisha was, and the woman was in a great hurry. When she reached Elisha, she grabbed his feet, and Elisha discerned that something was wrong. Of course, the woman was bitter and heartbroken, and it reads like she was blaming Elisha for the tragedy. She hadn't asked for a son, and if Elisha hadn't have interfered, her joy wouldn't have been snatched from her. The woman and the servant must have ridden very fast to get to Mount Carmel in time for Elisha and Gehazi to return home with her the same day. And the animal must have been exhausted from such a strenuous trip in the harvest sun. Elisha gave his staff to Gehazi and sent him on ahead. He was probably the younger of the two men and could run faster and get to the house much more quickly. But the woman was not satisfied until Elisha accompanied her. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his bed. He went in shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He stretched himself out on the boy and warmed him. But nothing happened. He got up and he paced around the room. Then he laid on the boy again. Suddenly the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. I can imagine Elisha moved pretty quickly. He called Gehazi and said, summon the mother. When she came, Elisha said, take your son. She fell at the prophet's feet and then she took her son. What if the Shunammite woman had not chosen to offer that first meal or show hospitality? When her son died, what if she accepted it as a fact and had him buried? And what if she hadn't trusted God to be in charge of the future? In another of the many stories about how God used his servant Elisha, you'll recall the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. The king of Syria was Ben-Hadad II, and as commander of the army, Naaman was the number two man in the nation. But with all his prestige and authority and wealth, Naaman was a doomed man because under his uniform was the body of a leper. In one of the border skirmishes with Israel, the Lord did a gracious thing when he permitted Naaman to bring the captive Jewish girl into his house to be his wife's maid. The girl was a slave, but she trusted the God of Israel, and she was sweet, and she witnessed for God. Her words were so compassionate and convincing to her mistress 
that Naaman's wife told her husband, and he in turn informed the king. Never underestimate the power of a simple witness. For God can take words from the lips of a child and carry them to the ears of a king. Naaman couldn't leave Syria without the king's permission. And he also needed an official letter of introduction to Joram, king of Israel. Joram was a son of Ahab and Jezebel. After all, Syria and Israel were enemies and the arrival of the commander of the Syrian army could be greatly misunderstood. Both Naaman and Ben-Hadad wrongly assumed that the prophet would do whatever the king commanded him to do and that both the king and the prophet would expect to receive expensive gifts in return. For that reason, Naaman packed along 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold along with very expensive garments. The servant girl had said nothing about kings and gifts. She only pointed to Elisha the prophet and told her mistress what the Lord could do. Unsaved people know nothing about the things of the Lord and only complicate that which is so simple. We aren't saved by bringing gifts to God, but by receiving by faith his gift of eternal life. King Joram completely, completely misinterpreted the Syrians' message for help and considered it an act of war. He tore his clothes. After all, the king of Israel couldn't help a general with leprosy. Elisha heard what King Joram had done, so he sent a message saying, have the man sent to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha knew that Naaman had to be humbled before he could be healed. Accustomed to the protocol of the palace, this esteemed leader expected to be recognized publicly and his lavish gifts accepted with exaggerated appreciation because that's the way kings did things. But Elisha didn't even come out of his house to welcome the man. Instead, he sent a messenger instructing him to ride 32 miles to the Jordan River and immerse himself in it seven times. Then he would be cleansed of leprosy. If Naaman began his journey in Damascus, then he traveled over 100 miles to get to Samaria, so another 30 miles or so shouldn't have upset him. But it did for the great general became angry. The basic cause of his anger was pride. He had already decided in his own mind just how the prophet would heal him, but God didn't work that way. 
Before sinners can receive God's grace, they must submit to God's will. For God resists the power, but gives grace to the humble, said Peter. The Lord had already been working on Naaman's pride, and there was more to come. King Joram wasn't able to heal him. The prophet didn't come to court or even come out to greet him. And he had to dip in the dirty Jordan River, not once, but seven times. And he a great general and second in command over the nation of Syria. Ah, that is just the trouble, said Evangelist Dwight Moody when preaching on this passage. He had marked out a way of his own for the prophet to heal him and was mad because he didn't follow his plans. Naaman had another plan and another problem. He preferred the clear waters back in Damascus to the muddy Jordan River. He thought his healing would come from the water, so it was logical that the better the water, the better the healing. If Naaman wouldn't listen to the command of the prophet, perhaps he would heed the counsel of his own servants. Elisha didn't ask him to do something difficult or impossible because that would only have increased his pride. He asked him to obey a simple command and perform a humbling act, and it was not unreasonable to submit. The faith of Naaman was being tested while pride struggled for the mastery. But faith conquered, and the haughty Syrian yielded his heart of pride and bowed in submission to the revealed will of Jehovah. Seven times he dipped himself in Jordan, and his faith was honored. When he came up from the water the seventh time, his leprosy was gone and his flesh was like that of a little child. He had had to remove his cloak, his helmet, his armor, his tunic, and his flesh was exposed to him. By obedience, he demonstrated his faith in God's promise and the Lord cleansed him of his epilepsy. To quote Dwight L. Moody again, he lost his temper, then he lost his pride, then he lost his leprosy. That is generally the order in which proud, rebellious sinners are converted. Naaman gave a clear testimony that the Lord God of Israel was the only true and living God and was God of all the earth. He renounced the false idols and gods of Syria and identified himself with Jehovah. What if the captive had not chosen to tell her mistress about Elisha, prophet of God? What if Naaman's anger and pride had caused him not to choose dipping in the Jordan River? 
would he have forfeited salvation? I shared this story 13 years ago, but I think you'll appreciate it again. John Blanchard stood up from the bench, straightened his army uniform, and studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. In the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. During the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting. 7 p.m. at the Grand Central Station in New York City. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing in my lapel. So at 7 o'clock, he was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved, but whose face he'd never seen. A young woman was coming toward him, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. He started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing the rose. As he moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor? She murmured. Almost uncontrollably, he made one step closer to her. And then he saw Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl. A woman well past 60. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick ankled feet thrust into low heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit swishing, walking quickly away. He felt as though he were being split in two. So keen was his desire to follow the girl, 
Yet so deep was his longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned and upheld his very own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. He did not hesitate. His fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify him to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which he had been and must ever be grateful. He squared his shoulders and saluted and held the book out to the woman, even though while he spoke, he felt choked with bitterness of his disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I am so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me to dinner, I should go and tell you she's waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. There are many biblical stories to give us examples of good or bad choices. Cain and Abel, Moses, Job, Ruth, Samson, Saul, Daniel, Esther, Peter, Ananias and Sapphira, Paul, and our Lord and Savior Jesus. Remembering the account of the widow's oil supply, what do you have that might become useful in the hands of Jesus? Will you allow him to use it? What excuses or obstacles might have held the Shunammite woman from caring for the Lord's servant? How can you show hospitality to God's people? Why did Naaman become angry with Elisha? When have you felt anger at God for a similar reason? Will you turn from pride and submit to Jesus? It's not difficult to understand and admire Miss Maynell's wisdom. Jesus asks you to choose him and put your stubborn pride and assumptions behind you. He's the creator and never grows tired or weary, and his understanding is endless and patient. He holds out his arms to give you strength, hope, and renewal. You will soar on the wings of eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. If you'll take the card that accompanied your bulletin, 
and where it says choices, you can fill out anything that you feel comfortable with on the front. But on the back it says, my next step today is make the choice to give Jesus authority over my life and to share this good news with someone. The second choice is read Ephesians 14 to 21. That's my favorite scripture and I'll bet you'll love it. The third one is to claim Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Won't you make a choice for him? He will take great delight in you and can you imagine he will rejoice over you with singing. Praise God.